and say a prayer. Voice three, the last one. A friend of mine is taking me to visit my apartment tomorrow, she said while scratching her emaciated and bruised legs. She's going to help me into the bath. I'm going to bathe in my own bathroom. Can you imagine? How long has it been have you, since you've done that, I asked. Over eight months. Eight months, wow. What do you think it'll be like being back in your apartment? I don't know. I miss my place more than I can say. Being there and seeing it again, it might be so beautiful I might just cry all day. But at least I'll have the bath. And I'll put on some of my clothes and I'll lie on my couch and just breathe and try not to wonder when I'll be back again. Friends at Mountain View, as I listened to these three voices and others, I knew that they were pointing to a deep, common human fear. Something particularly painful that we all know is a possibility and that many of us have lived as a reality. And I thought, this is a spiritual crisis, this loss of home. How does God speak into this wound here in our lives today? What kingdom truth answers the pain of this loss? What are the answers when we ache from a loss of place? And as this was percolating in my mind, but before I had delved into scripture to look for answers, I received an email indicating that it was time to send along my topic and verse for this sermon. On a lunch break during a 60-hour work week, I admit, I hastily Googled Bible verses about our heavenly home. I know, hang up, stay with me, You'll, I'll be forgiven. And that's when I landed on today's scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I saw this verse and I thought, yeah, this might lead to thoughts along the line of that old gospel song, I got a home up into that kingdom, ain't of that good news. So I sent it in. But the problem is, when I looked closer at the text, at 1 Corinthians, I didn't see what I thought I would find there. I saw a letter about divisiveness in the church and the folly of wisdom. Uh-oh. But I figured all I could do was dive into the world of the text, find out what was going on, what Paul was saying, and hope and pray that the Spirit would somehow show me how it related to what I was struggling with. So what was happening in the world of the text? What is happening in Corinth that Paul is speaking into? As it turns out, loss of home does play a role, a part in how Corinth developed. Actually, in how the whole Roman Empire developed because the empire displaced millions of people over the course of their conquests. Around 145 BC, Greek Corinth was defeated by the Roman Empire. 
and it wasn't pretty. It was a massacre. The majority of men were killed or driven out, and the women and children were sold into slavery, and the treasures of that Greek city were taken to Rome. But they couldn't kill and drive out everyone, and over the next 100 years, the local population had time to recover a bit. Around 45 BC, Rome established an official Roman colony in Corinth because, frankly, they needed somewhere to stick people. You see, Rome was bringing conquered people from all over as slaves to Italy to build these massive estates for the elite. And while they were putting them there, they were displacing many freed slaves and peasants in Italy who had previously served in the Roman legions. And these freed slaves and pe peasants who had served in wars, they couldn't just be left to start an uprising in Italy. So they were sent to colonies like Corinth. Some were given plots of land or homes, and some were just dropped off with a small payment for the homes that were taken from them. And these new Corinthians joined the existing Roman citizens as well as the remnant of the Greek population in the city plus anyone who had made their way there over the last hundred years before Paul wrote his letter. So what was Corinth like 200 years later, after 200 years of conquest and colonization, displacement and migration? It turns out it was an extremely competitive place, cutthroat competitive. Perhaps it had something to do with the violent origins of this city, or perhaps it was the way that the various cultures blended. But whatever, Corinth was known as such a competitive marketplace that there was a common saying in Rome that not for everyone is the voyage to Corinth. This was not a place where you would want to find yourself in need of charity or in need of a home. Not only was Corinth economically competitive, but it was academically competitive in the circles of the intellectual elites. Rhetoric was prized. Intelligence was seen as a sign of true nobility. Worldly wisdom was seen as divine favor. And the philosophers and teachers of Corinth waged battles with fine words every bit as fiercely as their competitors in the marketplace did with savvy business tactics. These intellectual giants battled for titles of wise one and mature one. And they would mock their competitors by calling them infants or children. And this pervasive spirit of one-upmanship seeped into the culture of the new church in Corinth, where disciples were choosing their favorite teacher, either Paul or Apollos, and passionately defending him and promoting his teachings above all others. And so they found themselves arguing over which follower of Christ was the better guru. Paul speaks into this atmosphere in his letter. This atmosphere where the poorer members of the church are fighting for their lives in the marketplaces of Corinth, trying to manage the competitive economic environment. And the wealthier members of the church were jostling for position, trying to prove that their religious leader is the most eloquent, the most noble, and the wisest. 
Into this, Paul writes, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Going even further, Paul strives to obliterate this idea of wisdom that the Corinthians have. He turns it completely inside out, showing them that they don't have the slightest idea what real wisdom is. I'm going to read a statement of his, and I want you to listen for the turns and twists in the sentence. He writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was being preached to save those who believe. So the wisdom of God rejoiced in what was foolishness to the world. And here's the wisdom of the world. A Jew in the Roman Empire, and one who wasn't even considered important by his own leaders, who fancied himself the Messiah of the world, was mocked, tortured, publicly executed in the style reserved for criminals and other rejects of the empire. To claim this man as the risen king, as God himself, and to worship him? What utter foolishness this would be to the intellectual elites outside of the church in Corinth. And so, says Paul, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Paul is speaking about Christ, but he's also speaking about the church here. He's basically saying, don't put on airs that you're wise and fancy and in the know. God chose you to be his church because you are weak and foolish, and this is how he will be glorified, by raising up those who cannot raise themselves up. And Paul's speaking of himself here as well. He writes, I came to you with weakness, not with wise and persuasive words. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul speaks of a message of godly wisdom spoken among the mature. And when he writes mature, he's not talking about the scholars of Corinth. No. He says that God's wisdom is a mystery that is hidden from the rulers of this age, hidden from those who think they are wise. And in this verse, the mature are those who have grown mature in the spirit of God. And this is where we find today's text. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul writes, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. And the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. You know, I was really hoping to bring you answers from scripture today. 
but that's not what I found. I went looking for answers, and I found an invitation to mystery, into the mystery of spirit wisdom. Paul writes these things. He writes that they're revealed to us by the spirit when we are mature in the spirit. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I am not yet mature in the spirit. Hold on, I'm also lost. There we go, I found it. I am not mature in the spirit. My human mind cannot conceive of what God has prepared for those who love him. This sermon will have to lack a tidy ending because I've not seen a vision of glory to share with you regarding the loss of our earthly homes. These mysteries haven't been revealed to me. And leaning on the spirit, it's hard. I want firm theological answers and precepts to hold and contain me, just like I want my home on earth here to hold and contain me. Relying on the Holy Spirit is truly transformative, but learning to rely on the Spirit, it can feel like being displaced and unhoused. There are no satisfyingly solid boundaries, just our own woundedness of heart and God's loving voice mingling within us suffering and surviving together in a place without walls and without the comforts of worldly wisdom. I say that I find leaning on the Spirit hard, but not impossible. Like an infant, I've learned to stand in God's Spirit. With the help of Scripture and the Church, I am learning to walk in Christ. And as I walk, the Spirit has revealed things to me. I've grown in the Spirit enough to see that when the rulers of this world thought they were defeating a charismatic madman of low station, they were really playing into the hands of the most terrifyingly powerful and yet most incredibly loving being in the universe. A being whose plan actually included their ignorance. I've also grown enough to know moments of embracing weakness and suffering that have led me deeper into glories I can't quite describe. But I can tell you that sitting with a man in his hospital room during his last hours, witnessing his struggle and praying and singing with him was strangely life-giving. I can tell you that a weekly session of lament with a patient who loudly and frequently groans out her despair to God is a sacred space that I found cleansing. I can tell you that the Spirit has shown me a space and a time where mental health patients with deep spiritual wounds are my teachers and hosts, and I am their humble acolyte. I can tell you that the work that I feared I would find exhausting and dehumanizing has been invigorating. And most days I come home feeling that I have witnessed something holy. And this gives me hope. Hope that in Corinth, while Paul was chastising the influential leaders of the church, the ones with means and homes, 
that the Spirit was giving God's own wisdom to the homeless and lowly in their congregations. The ones who came to meetings and sat in the corner or way in the back. And hope that God, through his Spirit, can open that door from the pain of losing one's home into some glorious truth about our kingdom home and how we might experience it while here on earth. And I have actually seen someone who received this spirit wisdom recently. I remember talking to a 94-year-old woman in palliative care who was patiently trying to enjoy visits with family while she was eagerly awaiting the visit she would get to make in heaven with her husband, her parents, and some of her siblings who had gone on to glory before her. She reminisced, I used to worry about the house so much, but now I can't remember why. It's just a house, after all. It's just so many rooms. And can you even imagine what my next one will look like? I shook my head, speechless. I couldn't. But oh, what wouldn't I give for the tiniest glimpse of that home to help me with the homework that Paul gives us in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He writes, Become fools so that you may become wise. My prayer for all of us is today is that we might become fools so that God might give us wisdom by his spirit. And I'd actually like to pray with you, if you don't mind. Help us, Father, Jesus, Spirit, to become more foolish every day so that we might receive your wisdom. Help me to listen to those who have achieved this foolishness so that I might hear their witness of your faithfulness in the midst of loss and weakness. When we lose what is familiar to us, when we lose our sense of place, and if we even lose the homes that have housed us and the spaces that have held us for many years, help us to enter into the mystery of the deep things of God so that we might catch a tiny glimpse of the glory that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind can conceive of. Amen. <laughs>